Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. At the head of the terrace and portico successively is a garden suite of rooms, my favourite spot and well worthy of being so. I had them built myself. In this is a sunny chamber which commands the terrace on one side, the sea on another and the sun on both. Besides an apartment which looks on the portico through folded doors and on the sea through a window. In the middle of the wall is a neat recess. It holds a couch and two easy chairs, and as you lie on the couch, you have the sea at your feet, the villa at your back, and the woods at your head. And all these views may be looked at separately from each window or blended into one prospect. Adjoining is a chamber for passing the night or taking a nap, and unless the windows are open, you do not hear a sound, either of your slaves talking or the murmur of the sea or the raging of the storms, nor do you see the flashes of the lightning or know that it is day. So that, Tom Holland, was Pliny the Younger on his Laurentine villa west of Rome in the early 2nd century AD. It sounds absolutely idyllic. It sounds exactly like the kind of place (laughs) I like to stay in on holiday. Um, so this is what? This is Pliny's holiday home. Is that right, Tom? Kind of. Um, I mean, Pliny is fabulously rich. He obviously has a house in um, in Rome. He has another house in Tuscany. He has another house um, up by Lake Como. So uh, like, what's his name? Thingy, George Clooney. Um, <laughs> George Clooney. Does he advertise <laughs> Nespresso? <laughs> I don't think he did. That would have been beneath him. Um, but he also has this gorgeous sounding villa on the Laurentine coast, which is about 20 miles from Rome, where he talks about, you know, in, in terms that would be, I think, instantly familiar to anyone looking to rent a very, very upmarket kind of holiday house, um, maybe on the Côte d'Azur or um, Big Sur or whatever. Um, I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, he, he talks, you know, he has a swimming pool. He has a dining room that's surrounded on three sides by the sea. He says that the base is washed by the foam of the waves. So absolutely gorgeous. Um, originally, we were going to we, we've done three episodes, haven't we, on the kind of the rise of the modern holiday. Um, yes. And it just made me think, is it worth comparing the modern experience of, of holidays and tourism? You know, is there, are there any parallels in antiquity? Because in lots of ways, I mean, it, 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 in some ways, it seems a kind of foolish question. It's such a different world. But I think that that, you know, holiday, Pliny's description of his, what is basically his holiday home, uh, it does kind of raise kind of potentially interesting parallels, I think. I mean, the difference, of course, is that Pliny owns it outright. He's not renting it or anything like that. But no, but rich people have always had holiday homes that they owned outright, Tom. I mean, that doesn't make him different from lots of people who have holiday homes in Cornwall or in France or, you know, Americans who have houses on Cape Cod or something. I mean, I suppose that would be very familiar, wouldn't it? I mean, the idea of the holiday, I guess our idea of the holiday is a holy day, right? That's, that's where the holiday is 
that's the descent and that's the break i mean dare i say the coming of christianity well well you say that but i mean the romans did have holidays in the sense of holy days so um yeah. they, dies ferialis they called them so th- these were uh, holidays defined by the state so they they were religious commemorated festivals of the gods or uh, anniversaries or um they were they were holidays announced by senior magistrates or all that kind of stuff and then you have as well you have the games so these are also um they're not officially holidays but you get the day off if you're uh you know living in rome so that's the whole yeah. um that's the circuses aspect of the bread and circuses I, you know it's one of the perks of living in rome is that you do get all these spectacles but i suppose the question is, are there parallels with, as you say, people going off to their holiday home in Cornwall or Cape Cod or whatever? Because I think there probably are, because these are perks of the rich in the way that we would understand them today. And they're the yeah. kind of things that you, that you don't get in the Middle Ages, I think. You don't get in you know, the Elizabethan period. You don't tend to get people going off to villas by the sea in the way that we have them now. Yeah, it's interesting that in that opening description. So, I mean, as you say, it's like an Airbnb, a very high class, um, an Airbnb plus. Um, Tom, <laughs> yes. it's a, it's yeah. a, um, it's a, you know, he says uh, the sun, the sea, the woods, the silence. The views. So, yeah. so he's. I mean, this is a great argument that historians always have with each other, whether some things are constant, whether some, you know, things that we desire, luxuries or our sense of what is beautiful or whatever, whether these things are constant or whether they're entirely socially and culturally conditioned. But Pliny seems to like in his in his sort of I mean, this is this is his retreat, right? This is the, his country yeah. house. This is the, I mean, he seems to like in that everything that we like in holiday yeah. homes. So in other words, the sun, the sea, the silence, they are all constants. Yeah. The Romans prize and, them just as much as we do. And the dining with the sea all around. I mean, that's such a, yeah. you know, it's, you, you go to an Aegean island and you get the, you know, the table looking out over the, the sunset or whatever. I mean, that's exactly what Pliny is talking about. Um, and one of, one of the things I think that is different Although actually, again, I mean, thinking about what we were talking about over the past three episodes, this nervous sense that holidays, um, you know, that you should improve yourself. So the Romans yes. do, you know, they absolutely have that. So they have this this phrase, otium cum dignitate. It's kind of leisure where you're not disgracing yourself, basically. Leisure where you are reading up on philosophy or doing elevated <laughs> contemplation of the nature of the gods or that kind of thing. Um, so they're very, they're, there's this nervousness about being lazy about being luxurious about becoming soft and yet of course at the same time that is the index of how much they wanted it um and pliny's villa is is west of rome but really the 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 epicenter of this kind of craving for the sea fine dining novel experiences <laughs> is a bit south of rome and it's um it's an area of italy that to this day remains an absolute kind of tourist honeypot and that's the bay of naples and the yeah. appeal of the bay of naples for romans is that it's very rich it's very beautiful it's kind of absolute you know the natural beauties are 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 profound but it's also has a flavor of greece so you can go to the bay of naples and you can genuinely feel that you are sampling something hellenic because Naples, Neapolis, the new the new city, 
Um, you know, that was founded by Greek colonists, other cities as well along that stretch of what the Rome's called Campania is well, it's still called Campania to this day. Um, provide visiting Romans with, you know, you can meet Greek philosophers, you can get Greek speaking prostitutes, all these kind of things that, uh, that, that Greece as well holds out. But you don't have to travel all the way to Greece to get them. So they have the same thing that we have, Tom, which is the desire for escapism and exoticism, right? I mean, that's what we look for in holidays. Not too much exoticism. Um, <laughs> so I suppose it get, it's a little bit like the Grand Tour, that on the Grand Tour, yeah. people are generally going to, uh, to Rome and to Italy because that's familiar to them from their education. And it, likewise for Romans, they educated Romans, elite Romans are being brought up by Greek tutors. They're studying Greek literature. They're studying Greek philosophy. And so the chance to sample a little bit of Greece, albeit in Campania, is extremely appealing. You know, they're not going off on adventure holidays to Gaul or anything like of that. Course. That's, that's not what they want. A quick question. So the people that we're talking about are a very tiny minority, presumably, uh, yeah, um, yeah. That, are, that are pretty similar problems. Are they to the grand tourists, to the social, to the, yeah. the the idea of an elite, a rich, a rich educated elite? I mean, most Romans never go on any form of holiday, presumably. Uh, absolutely, yes. So these are a minority of a minority. These are absolutely, you know, maybe five hundred people, uh, and right. even then, um, maybe only you know fifty can can afford the absolute kind of top quality properties. Um, but these are the guys who are writing the letters. These are the people yes. who are writing, you know, whose record, who, who, whose um, testimony survives. And of course, as is always the way with ancient history, we're dependent on the sources. But what you do get at the beginning of the first century BC, um, you get a figure who, insofar as it's possible to find a Roman equivalent of Thomas Cook, <laughs> you know, Thomas Cook, the guy who is packaging everything together and selling yeah. it to people who want a, a, a flavor of, you know, who want relaxation. Um, it's a guy called Sergius Arata, who in the 90s BC develops um, the oyster beds of Campania, which are, are celebrated as the best oyster beds in, in Italy. He develops them. He, uh, you know, he builds dikes, he builds channels, all this kind of stuff, turns the Lucrine Lake into this vast expanse of, of oyster farming. So that serves to attract gourmand uh, foodies, food snobs. Yeah. But then on top of that, um, he seems to have invented the heating swimming pool. It, it's a Latin phrase that is much contested, but the likeliest explanation is that he, he's, he's built kind of a, a swimming area that can be heated. So that's something attractive. And then on top of that, it seems that he is buying up plots of land, installing these heated swimming pools, developing the, the, the property sites and selling them to high-end clients in Rome. And so over the course of the first century BC, the line of the coast along the Bay of Naples, high-end properties with swimming pools seem to sprout up. So it's rather like California or um, you know, southern France. Yeah, the French and Riviera. The French Riviera. And um, we, we know of one of these kind of high-end ha houses is owned by the great General Marius, multiple consul, great military uh, leader, um, professionalizes the Roman legions. Yeah. And he has this property that is built, we're told, on a promontory, on a rocky promontory. And that seems to be a, an absolutely key part of the appeal. 
that you are kind of sticking out into the sea. And one of the other things that you can get in the Bay of Naples is that you have this ash that, that we know has been is volcanic. <laughs> they didn't necessarily, but it has the remarkable property that it can set underwater. And so this facilitates the development of kind of piers that start jutting out into the sea. So again, a bit like Brighton, you're, right. you know, you're able to, to provide people with the opportunity to walk out and feel that you're surrounded by the sea. But the Romans are much too smart, Tom, to be drinking seawater like in Brighton, right? Yeah, they're probably not drinking seawater, but they are going to spas. Are they? I was going to ask about spas. Yeah, they are. So, of course, um, the Bay of Naples, it's a very full of volcanic you know, activity. So there are lots and lots of sulfur baths, all kinds of things like that. And actually, um, the most notorious of all the pleasure resorts on the Bay of Naples, a place called Bayi, is yeah. celebrated for its sulfur baths. And these sulfur baths, a bit like Brighton, provide an opportunity for the development of spectacular architecture. Because the, um, this concrete that can be used to set underwater also yeah. has the it, – it, its, its quality is such that Roman engineers can start to develop a, a spectacular new architectural form, namely the dome. Yeah. And Bai is famous for having the largest dome in the world. And it, it spreads over hot pools, sulfur baths, um, and it rather like the um, – the Prince Regent's spectacular in Brighton. This serves as the kind of, you know, the absolute landmark for Bai. It's synonymous with all the kind of the pleasures and delights that, uh, that Bai has to offer. It's the ancient world's Blackpool Tower. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it's not Blackpool, of course, because Blackpool is, for, is for, for the working classes. Because it's exclusive, right. There is no equivalent because, because the work, yeah. w- working people cannot afford to go there. But the, yeah. the rich can... And so it's it's probably it's more like Brighton. So Tom, when the rich go, do they all own properties? Are there rentals? Are there hotels? How does that work? They own their own properties, right? Is there any? I mean, obviously there must have been um, places where you stayed if you were a traveller, a courier, you know that kind of thing. But is there any concept in Rome of the the hotel as a place you stay for pleasure? Not really, I don't think. Um, but just down from by, you have the great port of Portioli, which is yeah. a, a vast. Uh, again, it has kind of great harbour built out of this this concrete that can set underwater. Uh, and that's where all the grain ships come from that enable Rome to be sustained. Um, but Portioli also is kind of, you know, there are lots and lots of hotels. There are lots of brothels. There are lots of um, places where people who aren't necessarily senators can kind of procure entertainment and, and, and enjoyment. So Satyricon, right. Petronius is kind of novel. People aren't quite sure what it is, yeah. but it's a kind of prose account of, of people who are not of the senatorial class. And it gives you an insight into what life would be like for them. And there are absolutely, it, it's, it's almost certainly set in Portioli and you almost certainly get a sense of the kind of opportunities that are there for people who you know, aren't necessarily, necessarily kind of senatorial, but you know, there is fun to be had there. Um, so, so all of this, you know, it's, it's not an exact mapping on to the contours of the modern tourist industry, but I do think that there are kind of echoes there. Oh, there definitely are. Can I ask about a couple of things that, um, may or may not have existed? So you mentioned the harbor would people, I mean, it would seem to me an obvious thing to do if I were a Roman center that I might want to go on some form of cruise or some sort of, you know, 
take ship and go to Greece, go to Egypt and look upon the pyramids or whatever. Do people ever do that? Do people ever go to the great temples in, I don't know, Ephesus or something or, or Athens? That's a great question. I think we should look at that in the second half. But on the question of do they have yachts, say, in the Bay of Naples? Absolutely, yeah. they do. Yes, absolutely, they do. So at Bailly, again, which is the most notorious centre, part of the fun of it is that it is, it's a place where you can let your hair down. And so you go out on a yacht and you get up to all the kinds of things, perhaps, that uh, you wouldn't do even on dry land at Bailly. Um, okay. And so the kind of the, the sense that, you know, strains of music and laughter are kind of drifting through the, you know, the warm nighttime air uh, born from the yachts out in the bay is an absolutely key part of the appeal for, for, for people who can afford to go there. But it is, you know, if you, if you spend too much time at Bailly, then yeah. people start to raise eyebrows. Um, so Vespasian, for instance, a famously stern kind of old fashioned type of emperor, ruggedly refuses to go to Bailly because he sees it as, as too decadent. But even right. he, in the very last year of his life, can't, you know, he, he succumbs to temptation and goes and has a lovely time. But there is always this risk that, that kind of hedges a wealthy Roman constantly about that if you go too far, then people start to assume that you're up to no good. And the classic, classic example of this is the Emperor Tiberius. I was just going to ask about Tiberius. So I've been to Capri to the island yeah. that, that Tiberius went to. And of course, I think it's called the Villa Villa Jovis. Um, yeah. So the Villa of, of Jupiter. The Villa of Jupiter, his his luxury holiday home, which was a fantastic setting, overlooks the sea, and where famously, now maybe you'll be able to tell us whether this was, is true or not, Tiberius is supposed to have secluded himself and got up to no good on a very grand <laughs> scale. Um, Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about uh, right. Tiberius's holiday pursuits? So Tiberius is an unbelievably impressive man. Um, he is Rome's greatest general. Over the course of his military career, he twice saves Rome from um, a mass invasion, once on the, uh, on the Danube, once on the Rhine. He is highly, highly educated, highly, highly intelligent, very, very literate, um, a brilliant administrator, succeeds Augustus, uh, rules as emperor. Um, but I, I think by the end of his life, he's coming to feel that he has done enough. He is exhausted and he's fed up with Rome. He's fed up with the tensions implicit in his role because Tiberius is a man with um, a deep loyalty to the traditions of the Republic. And yet he yeah. has basically been obliged to take on the role of Augustus, so a kind of autocratic role. And I think that the tension in, in the role becomes too much for him. And so he he retires from Rome because he feels that he deserves his otium cum dignitate, his leisure time. He's earned the right to it. And he he heads down uh, down the coast. Uh, he stops off in uh, in one villa where he ha has a spectacular dining place beside a cave, which is illustrated where past which Odysseus is meant to have sailed um, on his voyages. And there's kind of spectacular uh, statues illustrating the voyages of Odysseus all around this dining space. It's it's slightly ruined because there's an earthquake <laughs> and oh, Tiberius no. almost gets crushed in the earthquake, but he survives that. And he then goes on and he, he ends up with basically the kind of the ultimate uh, retirement place, which is the, the island of Capri. 
which is out in the bay. So it's completely secluded. And this is where he essentially settles and he doesn't come back to Rome. And the Villa Jovis is one supposedly of 12 villas that he builds, each one modeled on one of the, uh, the gods of Olympus. And shocking, truly shocking stories are told of what he gets up to there. So, yeah. Notoriously, he's meant to go swimming in his in his pool and have these small boys who swim alongside him and nibble at his genitals as they do so. Um, even more shocking things he's meant to do that I, I don't think that they can be. Uh, Suetonius, who describes this, one of the sentences with which he he describes what what Tiberius is getting up to on Capri, I think is is the single most shocking sentence in the whole of ancient literature. Even more oh shocking gosh. than uh, than the descriptions of um, Theodora that we had in uh, last week. So if you want to go and find out what it is, go and, go and read a translation. I, w- I won't say on this podcast. So the question, obviously, you know, as we discussed with Procopius bitching about um, Justinian and Theodora is what, you know, where is this coming from? Is it accurate? There are other accounts of what Tiberius is getting up to on um, a Capri that make it sound a lot more innocent. Um, Tiberius is meant to have enjoyed growing vegetables in greenhouses. Okay, uh, that's he, very different. <laughs> he, he, he was a he was he was a great man for literary chit chat. Uh, he would okay. he would have you know rather abstemious suppers where they would people would sit around and um, he he would host um, literary people and he'd he'd stage quizzes for them. Um, yeah, you know, equivalent of pub it's like quizzes. Being a member of this podcast, Tom. There you get we stage quizzes. <laughs> very similar, very similar. Um, and so that there is a kind of tension there. And I think it reflects the fact that 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 basically there is this default Roman assumption that if you spend too long having a good time, secluded, yeah. isolated, in a villa, it can only mean utter depravity. That you yeah. are up to no good. Utter depravity. In other words, the, the Romans have no sense that anyone has a right to privacy. You lead your life in public because if you don't, it's because you're an absolute pervert. You're up to all kinds of revolting activities. And Tiberius becomes the kind of the showboy, I guess, the poster boy for that assumption yeah. in, in, in Roman life. And obviously, there is an enormous amount of class envy in this going right the way down the social scale. But for Tiberius, I mean, he, it's humiliating for senators who supposedly are Tiberius's peers that they can't get to Capri. You know, it's, it's Tiberius owns it exclusively. Um, and so they are, they, they are obliged if they want to have any contact with the emperor to kind of renting out properties along the Bay of Naples, which could be, you know, incredibly expensive. And if they can't afford that, then that's very humiliating. Um, and it's, you know, and, and people who can't afford to go to the Bay of Naples full stop in Rome, of course, they're going to moan and complain about it. Yeah, of course. Can I just jump in? Is there yeah. another dimension to this? Um, I, I know that it's such an interesting story, the story of Tiberius, which is that he's left Rome um, to be run by his right-hand man, Sejanus, who a lot of people yeah. hate and think is tyrannical. And so they're projecting, are they projecting a lot of their resentment of Sejanus onto Tiberius on the island of Capri. Yeah, so Sejanus is the guy who actually saves Tiberius from the earthquake that um, right. it almost kills him, um, and he then goes on to, to basically he's he's kind of Tiberius's conciliary, I suppose, running running Rome yeah. for him, and Tiberius ends up realizing that perhaps this is unwise and that Sejanus is is plotting a coup, and so has Sejanus dispatched um, very brutally and his all his family. Um, Yes, I mean, I, th- I think that that is all true. 
And of course, you know, that doesn't help with, with what people are saying about Tiberius. But I think that the sense that people feel that leaders should not be going on holiday when there are crises is absolutely something that we would recognize. Oh, yeah. If you're away in a crisis, Dominic Raab or Boris Johnson or whatever. Boris Johnson's just been off on holiday, hasn't he? He's been on his honeymoon yeah. and people are, are, yeah. are complaining about that. And also, I think um, there's kind of constant feeling that, that leaders don't deserve to get the kind of holidays right. that they may end up getting. So there was constant complaints about Tony Blair having, you know, being the guest of, of Cliff Richard or um, yes. Berlusconi or whoever. Well, Tony Blair went on some very, very ill-judged yeah. holidays, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think that sense that people have that um, the rich and the powerful are experiencing holidays and enjoyments and pleasures that the mass of the people can't have in Rome as in today generated hostility. And I think that that is one of the things that Nero is interesting for, very much friend of the show. So we, in our episode on Nero, we talked about, um, we talked about the golden house, which he built is this enormous kind of complex of palaces and pleasure gardens and lakes that he builds in the center of Rome after the, um, the great fire. And for senators, this is a monstrosity because basically what Nero is doing, he is bringing a luxury villa of the kind that Pliny described in, in the passage that you read at the opening that Tiberius enjoys on, on Capri into the heart of the capital. And so it's yeah. always remembered as an absolute monstrosity. But there is a case, I think, for saying that what Nero is doing is he's marketing himself as a friend of the people because he is giving people in Rome a chance to experience what they would not otherwise have. So you could say that Nero is playing the role of a very, very upmarket Billy Butlin. Well, I was about to say, isn't there a claim about Nero and his golden house that actually what Nero is trying to build is a a Roman antecedent of, I mean, I know it's a stupid comparison of something like Tivoli in Copenhagen, Pleasure Gardens, yeah, uh, I think which of course, Tivoli, of course, was the inspiration for Disneyland and then Disney World. So he's creating a, a pleasure park that actually the yeah. common people will be able to enjoy as much as the elite. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And um, of course, that's why the Senate hates it. Um, yeah. And obliterate it, but of course, the uh, the emperor who obliterates it is Vespasian, the stern, rugged soldier who refuses to go to to Bai because he's so puritanical about it. But you know, he knows that if he's going to obliterate this great kind of concentration of lakes and gardens and groves that the, the people have been enjoying, he has to replace it with something else. And so he builds Rome's most famous monument on the site, namely the Colosseum. Right. Uh, and uh, and the you know the inauguration of the Colosseum and the kind of constant celebrations and feast day and and um, and public games that are held in the Colosseum enable the masses in Rome to have a lot of holidays. Well, I was about to say the Colosseum, of course, a place that people see on holidays, which Vespasian presumably will not approve of um, visiting the Colosseum and eating an ice cream. I think he'd be very happy to know that it was still standing and that he, yeah, he, was, he, he was still remembered for it. I was about to say we should take a break in a second, but have you got more to say about... Um, no, I think... You, no, you haven't? Well, I, Unbelievable. I, I find that utterly implausible. Well, I thought we should move on in the second half to, um, you know, to tourism, going abroad, we will. trips like that. Let's do that. We will pack our bags in the uh, commercial break and we will return after the adverts poised to go on a, on a Roman holiday, as it were. Uh, I'm Gregory Peck. Tom is Audrey Hepburn, and we'll see you in a couple of minutes. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, our bags are packed, passports prepared. Uh, Tom, we're about to embark on a, um, on a, a pleasure cruise, a voyage, um, call it what you will. So where are we heading? Uh, we're heading for Greece because, of course, um, you know, the Greek world really, um, I suppose, for Romans is what uh, Europe was for American tourists in the maybe the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It was... Yeah. Um, you know, it was a it was a place where you could uh, you could feel rich, um, but you could enjoy some you know good old old world culture. So I think the parallel is quite a is quite a neat one. Um, and elite Romans are studying Homer, they're studying Greek philosophy, and so the famous sites in Greece, Athens, Sparta, Delphi, Olympia, are, are places with resonance for Romans in the way that say London or Paris or Rome would be for Americans. Yeah. Um, you know, these are places that you are familiar with from your childhood. And so you, you, you may well want to see them. And the first person, uh, that we have kind of record of doing this, um, basically going on a kind of an equivalent of a, a tour looking at the sites, um, is a very distinguished, uh, military figure in Roman history, Lucius Aemilius Paulus who is the son of the consul that dies at the Battle of Cannae, where Hannibal, um, you know, yep. his great murderous victory over Rome, the, the worst defeat that the, the Roman Republic ever suffered. Um, and he's the father of Scipio Aemilianus, who will go on to, uh, to destroy Carthage. Um, our Paulus's contribution to uh, Roman military glory is that he defeats um, the king of Macedon, Perseus, uh, at the Battle of Pydna in 168. Uh, and so he gets given by the Senate the the, the subriquet Macedonicus. Um, Very good. So that's his kind of yeah. So a splendid a splendid title. 
And the year after he has um, he's won the Battle of Pydna, he goes back to the Greek mainland and the kingdom of Epirus, which is kind of Albania, basically, isn't it? Um, it's where uh, Olympias, who was on um, the historical love island, the mother of Alexander the Great came from. And Paulus does his stuff. He goes around. He kind of beats the crap out of the the the, the Epirots. He sacks some of their cities. He loots and, and does all that kind of stuff. And then he decides he would like to go on a tour round uh, round Greece. And Livy, in his History of Rome, has a brilliant description of it. And he says that it was it was now about the season of autumn. So that's kind of interesting. You don't want to go traveling in the summer because it's too hot. No, right. You know, if you're Roman, so yeah. you, you go in the autumn. Uh, Paulus decided to take advantage of the beginning of this season by traveling around Greece to visit the places which have become so famous by report that they are taken on hearsay as more impressive than they proved to be when actually seen. So, oh no, the perennial holiday problem. Yeah, I think I think that must be the first account in. I mean, maybe if there's an earlier one, I'd, I'd love to hear it, if listeners can think of one. But that must, as far as I know, that's the first account of, you know, sites that turn out to be not quite as impressive as you think they're going to be. Um, so, uh, so Paulus goes off and he, he goes to Delphi and he goes to Athens, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Argos, he goes to Sparta, he goes to Olympia. Um, and then he goes back and we talked, didn't we, uh, 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 over all three of the previous episodes about how modern tourists want to bring stuff back to show yeah, that they've been yeah. to a place. So, um, you know, you or I might bring back a, a knickknack, um, yeah. lords, millords going to Rome might bring back a, a classical statue. Lord Elgin would bring some marbles. Yeah. Paulus brings back, you know, ships crammed full of loot. Um, absolutely huge, huge amounts of loot. And this is what Roman generals from this point on, whenever they hit the Greek world and they have a chance to get embroiled in a war, they they seize it with open arms. And so the most notorious figure who does this is um, a guy called Lucius Mummius, who in 146 is served up on a platter the opportunity to sack the famous city of Corinth. And Corinth is famous for its bronzes, it's famous for its um, statuary, and it's famous again, as Naples was, for its prostitutes. So <laughs> Mummius wipes Corinth from the face of the, of the earth, and the keys are loaded with bronzes, statues, works of art, prostitutes all of which are loaded onto the ships taken back to rome and mummies can say you know he had a splendid time in greece and from that point on basically um you know all these villas that we were talking about in in uh, in the first part of this episode are, are stuffed full you know this is where you get your your antiquities this is where you get your yeah. um but there's no i mean the difference in then and now is there's no there's clearly no resentment of this presumably i mean there isn't a sort of movement later or 200 years later people saying <laughs> well, you um, should restitute no yeah restitute <laughs> loot. no 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 of course not and it, it, interestingly of course i mean you know on the topic of the elgin marbles um the, the, the parthenon was built with loot that the athenians extorted from their subjects um, yeah. And when in due course, uh, Marius's great rival, Sulla, gets the chance to sack Athens, you know, he kind of basically says, well, you know, this is payback. So he, he, um, he, 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 he storms Athens and he, he nicks all kinds of stuff. So he nicks the complete works of Aristotle. You know, it'd be like, I suppose, I don't know, people 
stealing the contents of the British Library or something like that. The Vatican Library, you know, taking them back to Washington or something like that. Exactly. Um, Well, it's pretty much what the Nazis did, isn't it? I mean, this was... Yeah, of course. It's exactly what they did. Kind of pillaging. You know, in in Warsaw or Krakow or whatever, they would... um, Yeah. They would load up with their tapestries and books and all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And there's this large uh, temple to Zeus that's been unfinished in Athens with all these kind of pillars standing there. And um, Sullen knows that, uh, that the temple of, of Jupiter back on the capital in Rome has burnt down. So he <laughs> just takes the pillars, <laughs> takes them back to Rome. So it's all very Lord Elgin behavior. Um, yeah. And you, you asked about how do the Greeks feel about this? That there's actually, there's a really... This is this is quite a bit later, so this is early uh, second century. But there's um, a kind of philosopher, stroke scholar, called Dio, who comes um, from uh, the city called Prusa in uh, Bithynia, which is now kind of northern northern Turkey, um, just down from the Bosphorus, Sea of Marmara, um, and he visits Rhodes, and he's appalled by what he finds the Rhodians are doing to flatter visiting Roman dignitaries. So Roman tourists. Yeah. The, what, what the Rhodians are doing is they are taking statues of, you know, famous Rhodian heroes, often dating hundreds of years back. And they're erasing the names of the people to whom these statues originally portrayed and chiseling in the names of Romans. Oh, that is poor. That is very poor form. Yeah. Tom. And, and Dio is appalled by this and says, you know, you're, you're, you're wiping out your history. You're erasing your history yeah um but he also notes that the romans have have carted off a lot of statues from Rhodes, and he doesn't he doesn't mind this and in fact he he rather approves of it and he says it's true that the romans have carried off statues from everywhere including Rhodes, but this was to adorn their city where the objects are much better off than in some obscure corner of greece so actually dio is saying you know this is this is kind of saying well it's much better for the for the uh parthenon friesians to be in london where everyone can come and see them um, yeah. it's, it's almost identical argument. So kind of interesting. And do the Romans, Tom, do they go further East? Do they go, would they go to, for example, to Asia Minor? Would they go to what's now Turkey? Would they go to Egypt? They would. So, um, Ephesus is, is a, is a great center. All the, I mean, all the cities that have some home, so Troy, uh, you know, places that have some kind of mythological, historical yeah. resonance that, that that's what they're interested in. or indeed kind of reputation for great art great statuary and it's this kind of combination of i suppose of of art and the numinous the mythological that is really what what roman tourists want but that's a bit like the grand that's the grand tourists isn't it i mean they're looking for uplift and aesthetics and uh, but also fun and i suppose romans would have been the same completely uh, so on the i mean on the subject of the great tour we talked about byron um in our first episode and you know he goes on he actually goes to greece and in child harold he he's writing about cicero the great roman orator and he quotes um a letter that was written to cicero by a guy called servius Sulpicius, just after cicero's daughter has died and Sulpicius writes to cicero basically trying to cheer him up saying you know worst things happen at sea is basically chin up that kind of thing um, and Byron appends this note. He says, the celebrated letter of Servius Sulpicius to Cicero on the death of his daughter describes as it then was and now is a path which I often traced in Greece, both by sea and land, in different journeys and voyages. And then he quotes Sulpicius. On my return from Asia, as I was sailing from Aegina towards Megara, 
I began to contemplate the prospect of the countries around me. Aigano was behind, Megara before me, Piraeus on the right, Corinth on the left, all which towns, once famous and flourishing, now lie overturned and buried in their ruins. And upon this sight, I could not but think presently within myself, alas, how do we poor mortals fret and vex ourselves if any of our friends happen to die or be killed whose life is yet so short, when the carcasses of so many noble cities lie here exposed before me in one view. So Aegon, Omega, Piraeus, Corinth, these are all cities that kind of lie around Athens. And what you're getting there is that kind of shiver that tourists still get today or dream of getting because they don't anymore because so many tourists tend to go to antique, you know, ancient sites. But the, the dream is of stumbling across some ancient city in its vastness and loneliness and feeling that kind of shiver down your spine. And yeah. clearly what, what Salpitris is articulating is pretty much the same sentiment. Um, you get a kind of shiver from thinking that which was great is no longer so. So it's sort of Ozymandias, isn't it? The traveller in the desert sees the sees the statue and it makes him think about the passing of time and the contours of history and all these kinds yeah. of things. But interestingly, there is also a kind of counter view that actually what you want when you say you go to Greece is you don't just want ruins. You want to experience, say, Athens or Sparta as they were in their heyday. So when Cicero yeah, goes, to, and, and Ath- Athens really, Athens, I suppose, is, is what Rome is to... Well, it's a cross between what Rome was to Millords in the days of the of the Grand Tour, and perhaps what Oxford is to Rhodes Scholars. So it's it's a place that is the the kind of the home of history, the home of art, but it's also a kind of a finishing school with great you know ancient monuments all around yeah. where you can feel yourself. So Cicero um, says that. Um, you know, he's, he describes the sites to be seen in, in Athens, the tomb of Pericles, the uh, the walkway where Demosthenes practiced his oratory. And he says that such things are endless in the city, for wherever we walk, we plant our footsteps on some piece of history. But by the time that, that the greatest tourist in Roman history, who is the Emperor Hadrian, who goes all over mm. the Roman world, but but Greece is really his love. And he goes there again and again and again. By the time he goes to Athens... He wants more than this sense of faded glories. And so what Hadrian can do because he's emperor is basically restore Athens to its former primacy. So he, he develops Athens on a massive scale. He, he brings in infrastructure. He, 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 it's Hadrian who finishes off this temple to Zeus that, that Sulla had kind of nicked the columns from. Um, and he enshrines Athens at the head of a kind of great confederation of Greek cities. So he's basically trying to take Athens back to the heyday of the 5th century BC when all this tribute was coming in from Greek cities with which they built the Parthenon. So that's what he's trying to do. He's he's trying to yeah. get Athens back to the 5th century so that then he can experience that kind of glory. Um and the other the the other kind of intriguing city that that where the Romans basically try and and resurrect try and kind of resurrect history is Sparta. Because Sparta famously there isn't much to see. Um, so when when Paulus goes to Sparta, Livy says there isn't much. You know, there wasn't much to see yeah. there. I can vouch for that. I went to Sparta last year, Tom. There wasn't much to see. I know, and I directed you to a place full of um, homeless people, didn't I? Yeah. Well, you directed me to a temple where the guidebook then said, "Under no circumstances go to this temple." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. So. <laughs> So Livy says that Paulus goes to Sparta not because there was anything to see, but because of the you know he wanted to admire the the kind of traditional Spartan way of life. You know the um, girls wrestling, boys being yeah. whipped, 
brutally. I would have uh, loved to have seen every- all that. I was very disappointed there was none of that going on. Right. I think, I think you know, secretly people, I think all tourists would, would quite like to see that. And Palace is yeah. disappointed because by this point, um, it's not happening. Um, right. You know, it's, Sparta is just like anywhere else. And so over the course of the first century B, uh, AD, you're palpably starting to get this sense in Sparta that Roman tourists are turning up and they're disappointed by what they're finding. And by the time that Hadrian is emperor, you know, he turns up and there's wrestling, girls are wrestling, boys are being kind of whipped for the entertainment of watching <laughs> tourists. I, I, you know, it's all. And, and, and Hadrian likewise kind of gives money to the Spartans so that they can kind of reinstitute, you know, they can, they, they can have a kind of sense of their old primacy. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a very, very, I suppose it would be like, a, you know, Bill Gates turning up in Stratford, say, and saying, well, I'm going to pull everything down and rebuild it in a Tudor fashion or something like that. But in a way, Tom, it's exactly the same as, as the thing we talked about in, I think, the very first episode. No, the, the, the second episode, sorry, the Victorian tourism. When we were talking about when people went to Italy on kind of, you know, the sort of early Victorian package tour type things, they wanted to see Italians making pasta in the old-fashioned way rather than with the new, you know, and, and the way in which actually the, that this still happens, right? No matter where it is, they specialize in leather and lace, kind of old-fashioned artisan <laughs> yeah. products. Yeah. They're clearly yeah. are probably being shipped in by someplace from some factory in China. But yeah. what you want to see is you want to see old women, you know, doing the lace yeah. in the way that they've done for generations. Yeah. I mean, that's... That is pretty much it. Yeah. but But presumably Hadrian is about the... Would I be right in thinking that this is about the peak, as it were, of Roman tourism? Because obviously after Hadrian, you know, we've got the crisis coming of the third century. You've got the sort of the contraction of the empire, the economic contraction, plagues and so on. So presumably the whole, as it were, the tourist industry, if that's not a completely anachronistic way of talking about it, begins to implode from that point onwards. Yes, I think so. Uh, and also, of course, um, with the coming of Christianity, that shared classical culture starts to fade. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I think while it lasts, is it a tourist? Ind- I suppose you could, I, I mean, without too much risk of anachronism, I think you could definitely say that um, the, the atti- you know, the relationship of the Roman elites to the Greek world in particular, you know, it does have kind of echoes of very, very high end contemporary tourism, perhaps. I yeah. think it's slightly more ambiguous with places beyond the Greek world. So, for instance, uh, Augustus, his his grandson and adopted son, Gaius, he is in the east and he has to pass through Judea. Yeah. And Suetonius tells us that Augustus wrote to him approvingly because while Gaius was traveling through Judea, he had he had not gone and, and seen Jerusalem. So the implication of that is is firstly – that Jerusalem was a kind of tourist attraction for Romans. Yeah, that you could have stopped off and seen it. Yeah, yeah. you would go and look at the temple, Herod's great temple, which was absolutely a kind of tourist attraction. But also that you're to be admired for not doing that, for, for being devoted to duty. Um, I think also, of course, the other land that that is absolutely stuffed full of tourist attractions is Egypt. Yeah. But for the very high-end traveller, Egypt is problematic because it's the private property of Caesar. And from Augustus onwards, senators are not allowed to travel to yeah. Egypt. 
So even uh, Germanicus, who is um, in the reign of Tiberius, you know, absolute war hero, almost certainly you know, projected to, to succeed Tiberius as emperor, he goes to Alexandria to basically to see the sites and gets into all kinds of trouble. But that doesn't stop people below the rank of senator from going to Egypt. And we have this brilliant, brilliant record of um, of exactly how many Romans are going to Egypt in the form of these two great statues of the of the Pharaoh Amenhotep the Third, who's the father of Akhenaten, um, and they were erected outside this huge uh, funerary temple um, at Thebes, so Luxor, um, on the west bank, so kind of in front of the the, the road that leads to the Valley of the Kings. But by the time that um, you know Roman tourists are going there, they've completely forgotten who, who these two great statues are, these two colossi, as they call them. And they think that it's a hero called Memnon, who they believed had been the king of Ethiopia, who'd come to the Trojan yeah. War. He was the son of the, of, of the dawn. Um, he died in the Trojan War, killed by Achilles. And then the dawn had gone to Zeus and had begged for uh, Memnon to be brought back to life. And so Zeus allowed him to become an immortal. And... There was a weird kind of atmospheric freakish quality to the base of one of these statues, which was that very often at dawn, when the sun first came up, the base of this statue would would sing. Well, it wouldn't exactly sing. We're told that it, it, it sounds like a lyre being played with a broken string. So there must have been some crack that the wind was going through or something. Or, or there's kind of, I think there's moisture perhaps in a crack and as right. the sun comes up and it yeah. dries it and it makes it produces the sound but this this basically i mean maybe even more than the pyramids is what people in in egypt want to see and so they go to these statues and they they graffiti it <laughs> you know so oh, they, right. they so yes. they pay money to the priests who then chisel kind of you know names all over the uh all over the colossi of memnon as they're called and so it's an incredible you know it's a fabulous record of just how many people are going there so for instance yeah. there's there's a guy called Swadius who is also attested in Tacitus. He he's um he gets involved uh, in the civil wars of um, AD sixty nine, the year of the four emperors. Uh, um, he he's involved um, fighting for uh, for Otho, and then he gets sent by Vespasian to sort out uh, Pompeii. And so he's his kind of posters and inscriptions are all over Pompeii, and then his name pops up on inscribed <laughs> on the statue of Memnon, which right. is brilliant. Yeah. But the, um, the, uh, the, the most famous inscriptions on the statue of Memnon are inscribed by a woman called Julia Balbila, who is a distinguished poet, uh, the sister of a very, very wealthy grandson of a king who lived in Athens. And she goes on possibly the most famous Roman tour of Egypt of the lot, which again is Hadrian. Hadrian travels to Alexandria. He sails down the Nile. Uh, he's with his wife, Sabina, and Julia Balbila is there um, as Sabina's uh, companion. And they arrive at the statues of Memnon. They all go and, and dawn to wait for the statues to sing. They don't sing. Hadrian yeah. kind of goes off. But Julia and, and Sabina go back the next day and hear them sing. And they go back again and again and again because they're so fascinated by the phenomenon. And Julia has four of her poems inscribed on the uh, on the leg of, of the statue of Memnon. And um, they're there to this day. Oh, wonderful. That sounds amazing. Byron notoriously chisels his name on the uh, the Temple of Poseidon at Sunion um, in Attica. Julia Balbila, centuries and centuries before, is basically doing the same thing. And so that I think there is a, you do have this sense of perhaps, you know, kind of mirrors being held up. Yeah, to the... Unfortunately, Tom, that, that, that gives legitimacy to all those people who 
scrawl their names, teenagers now, <laughs> yeah, on, well, um, on ancient monuments, which they I, invariably do. I think you've got to be a kind of high-end Athenian poet or a lord. Yeah, to get away with really it. Really to get away with it, I think. And uh, one last question, I think, is um, – uh, among other things, my internet, I've just had a message saying my internet connection is unstable. So, um, oh, no. listeners, listeners will be, will be, they'll be worried to hear that because they'll worry about the future of the podcast. I can assure you, I will, I stand for stability and I will ensure the restoration <laughs> of stability, something I've advocated since the very beginning of this podcast. Now, Tom, um, it's about, you, you mentioned Christianity, the coming of Christianity. And obviously, you know, the search for the classical heritage kind of goes into abeyance as it were and it's but it's replaced with something else which is pilgrimages so people wanting to go to yeah. jerusalem people wanting to go to rome so we talked at the very beginning of this week about alfred the great as a little boy going to rome didn't we on, on a pilgrimage yeah. how much do you think it's it's reasonable to talk about those in 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 terms of holidays because there must have been an there clearly was an infrastructure to support it. And there's the same sense of travel, of anticipation, of excitement, of fun, of uplift that we get with modern holidays. Well, we talked about this. I mean, we kind of touched on it very briefly that you only have to look at the the Canterbury Tales to see that fun was absolutely a part of it. I mean, that's why people were doing it. But that we sh you shouldn't overemphasize that because certainly for you know people in the early Middle Ages, it was really tough. I mean, it was really brutal. The, the dangers right. were enormous. And particularly if you were, you know, you were traveling throughout the Middle Ages, particularly when Jerusalem was under Muslim rule, to travel to Jerusalem, you know, which is top pilgrimage destination if you're a Christian, was very, very dangerous. And, and likewise for Muslims traveling, you know, doing the Hajj again. You know, there are opportunities for, you know, it's, it, you're getting out of your normal situation. So there are, in that sense, kind of echoes of, of, of going on a holiday. But I mean, it wasn't really a pilgrimage unless it was tough. And I think they were tough. Right. But having said yeah. that, again, going back to the Roman period, um, the fourth century, uh, when perhaps the infrastructure, the kind of the folk memories of, of people going on trips around, you know, the classical sites was still a kind of living thing. High end, pilgrims going to Palestine, going to the Holy Land in the fourth century, of whom the most famous is Helena, the mother of um, of Constantine. When they get there, it's different to going to Athens or Egypt, because often you're looking for things that aren't there. So famously, Helena turns up in Jerusalem. She wants to see the place where you know Jesus died, his tomb. She wants to see the, the true cross. It's not there. And so she starts excavating and whoa, there they are. There it is. <laughs> right. She finds the true cross. Who'd have what thought? What an it? extraordinary coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So that's why she's the patron saint of, of archaeologists. But that is paradigmatic of a way in which over the course of the fourth century, pilgrims who are going to Palestine, basically in liaison with the locals, are constructing a kind of tourist itinerary so there's they're saying you know this hill is where david did that uh this 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 house is where peter lived uh this lake is where jesus walked on the water whatever they're, they're kind of constructing a tourist topography that yeah. is still there to this day so that basically when when tour parties go to israel and visit the biblical sites as likely as not, they're visiting biblical sites that were manufactured as biblical sites in the in the fourth century by very similar Roman tour parties. And so I think that is a kind of fascinating continuity. Well, that's a lovely way to end because, I mean, one of the great themes of this week has been continuity, hasn't it? I mean, it's 
it's one of the themes of history generally, but it's really interesting with holidays um, and with tourism, how many things that the grand tourists did, that the Thomas Cook pioneers did, that the first people on the horizon flights in the 1950s, or indeed Pliny and his frankly delightful sounding uh, villa. <laughs> yes. they're, yeah. they're, they're so um, recognizable, aren't they? And uh, Tom, you've got a holiday coming up, I believe. Haven't you? You've got a Greek holiday of your own. Uh, well, not till not till October, because I didn't want to book it uh, and still have not finished my book. So I left it as late yeah. as possible. But yeah, very much looking forward to it. I need it. Very exciting. So Tom uh, can is now free to go and plan his holiday. Um, I am going to go and begin the institution of the of stability, um, which I'm obviously all about. Internet stability in my case, and then I'll move on to uh, the political and cultural stability of the realm. Something I always advocate for on this podcast and uh tom what have we got coming up we've got um yeah we've got french history told through the medium of film we've got lady yeah. jane gray we've got yeah. uh, china and the second world war we've got all kinds of goodies so um all kinds of treats it's actually better than going on holiday isn't it listening to this podcast. So. it's a holiday in itself yeah. it's uplifting and it's also enormously sexy which is i think what people look for um in a is holiday it? goodness definitely um, are you inc- incredulous that people look for that, or are you incredulous that I think that about this podcast? I'm slightly incredulous that you think this podcast is sexy, with the possible exception of Love Island and pigeons. I'm reflecting what the public tell me. That is a very, very exciting thought, and uh, one on which I think we should say goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.